0: Chapter six, Part two of A Wonder Book for Girls and Boys by Nathaniel Hawthorne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Clive Catterall from clivecatterall.com. The Chimera, Part two. But what a bound did Pegasus make when for the first time he felt the weight of a mortal man upon his loins! A bound indeed! Before he had time to draw breath, Bellerophon found himself five hundred feet aloft and still shooting upward, while the winged horse snorted and trembled with terror and anger. Upward he went, up, 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 until he plunged into the cold misty bosom of a cloud, at which, only a little while before, Bellerophon had been gazing and fancying it a very pleasant spot. Then again, out of the heart of the cloud, Pegasus shot down like a thunderbolt, as if he meant to dash both himself and his rider headlong against a rock. Then he went through about a thousand of the wildest caprioles that had ever been performed either by a bird or a horse. I cannot tell you half that he did. He skimmed straight forward and sideways and backward. He reared himself erect with his forelegs on a wreath of mist, and his hind legs on nothing at all. He flung out his heels behind and put down his head between his legs, with his wings pointing right upward. At about two miles' height above the earth, he turned a somersault. So that Bellerophon's heels were where his head should have been, and he seemed to look down into the sky instead of up. He twisted his head about, and looking Bellerophon in the face with fire flashing from his eyes, made a terrible attempt to bite him. He fluttered his pinions so wildly that one of his silver feathers was shaken out, and floating earthward, was picked up by the child, who kept it as long as he lived in memory of Pegasus and Bellerophon. But the latter, who, as you may judge, was as good a horseman as ever galloped, had been watching his opportunity, and at last clapped the golden bit of the enchanted bridle between the winged steed's jaws. No sooner was this done than Pegasus became as manageable as if he had taken food all his life out of Bellerophon's hand. To speak what I really feel, it was almost a sadness to see so wild a creature grow suddenly so tame and Pegasus seemed to feel it so likewise. He looked round to Bellerophon with the tears in his beautiful eyes, instead of the fire that so recently flashed from them. But when Bellerophon patted his head, and spoke a few authoritative yet kind and soothing words, another look came into the eyes of Pegasus. For he was glad at heart, after so many lonely centuries, to have found a companion and a master. Thus it always is with winged horses and with all such wild and solitary creatures. If you can catch and overcome them, it is the surest way to win their love." While Pegasus had been doing his utmost to shake Bellerophon off his back, he had flown a very long distance. They had come within sight of a lofty mountain by the time the bit was in his mouth. Bellerophon had seen this mountain before, and knew it to be Helicon, on the summit of which was the winged horse's abode. Thither. After looking gently into his rider's face, as if to ask leave, Pegasus now flew, and alighting, waited patiently until Bellerophon should please to dismount. The young man accordingly leapt from his steed's back, but still held him fast by the bridle. Meeting his eyes, however, he was so affected by the gentleness of his aspect, and by the thought of the free life which Pegasus had heretofore lived that he could not bear to keep him a prisoner, if he really desired his liberty. Obeying this generous impulse, he slipped the enchanted bridle off the head of Pegasus, and took the bit from his mouth. "'Leave me, Pegasus,' said he, "'either leave me or love me.' In an instant the winged horse shot almost out of sight, soaring straight upward from the summit of Mount Helicon. Being long after sunset, it was now twilight on the mountain-top, and dusky evening all over the country round about. But Pegasus flew so high that he overtook the departed day, and was bathed in the upper radiance of the sun. Ascending higher and higher, he looked like a bright speck, and at last could no longer be seen in the hollow waste of the sky. And Bellerophon was afraid that he should never behold him once more. But while he was lamenting his own folly, the bright speck reappeared, and drew nearer and nearer until it descended lower than the sunshine, and behold, Pegasus had come back. After this trial there was no more fear of the winged horses making his escape. He and Bellerophon were friends, and put loving faith in one another. That night they lay down and slept together, with Bellerophon's arm about the neck of Pegasus, not as a caution, but for kindness and they awoke at peep of day, and bade one another good morning, each in his own language. In this manner Bellerophon and the wondrous steed spent several days, and grew better acquainted and fonder of each other all the time. They went on long aerial journeys, and sometimes ascended so high that the earth looked hardly bigger than the moon. They visited distant countries, and amazed the inhabitants, Who thought that the beautiful young man on the back of the winged horse must have come down out of the sky? A thousand miles a day was no more than an easy space for the fleet Pegasus to pass over. Bellerophon was delighted with this kind of life, and would have liked nothing better than to live always in the same way, aloft in the clear atmosphere, for it was always sunny weather up there, however cheerless and rainy it might be in the lower region. But he could not forget the horrible Chimera which he had promised King Iobates to slay. So at last, when he had become well accustomed to feats of horsemanship in the air, and could manage Pegasus with the least motion of his hand, and had taught him to obey his voice, he determined to attempt the performance of this perilous adventure. At daybreak, therefore, as soon as he unclosed his eyes, he gently pinched the winged horse's ear in order to arouse him, Pegasus immediately started from the ground, and pranced about a quarter of a mile aloft, and made a grand sweep around the mountain-top, by way of showing that he was wide awake and ready for any kind of an excursion. During the whole of this little flight he uttered a loud, brisk, and melodious neigh, and finally came down at Bellerophon's side as lightly as ever you saw a sparrow hop upon a twig. "'Well done, dear Pegasus! Well done, my sky-skimmer!' cried Bellerophon fondly stroking the horse's neck. And now, my fleet and beautiful friend, we must break our fast. Today we are to fight the terrible Chimera. As soon as they had eaten their morning meal and drank some sparkling water from a spring called Hippocrene, Pegasus held out his head of his own accord so that his master might put on the bridle. Then, with a great many playful leaps and airy caperings, he showed his impatience to be gone while Bellerophon was girding on his sword, and hanging his shield about his neck, and preparing himself for battle. When everything was ready, the rider mounted, and, as was his custom when going a long distance, ascended five miles perpendicularly, so as the better to see whether he was directing his course. He then turned the head of Pegasus towards the east, and set out for Lycia. In their flight. They overtook an eagle, and came so nigh him before he could get out of their way, that Bellerophon might easily have caught him by the leg. Hastening onward at this rate, it was still early in the forenoon when they beheld the lofty mountains of Lycia, with their deep and shaggy valleys. If Bellerophon had been told truly, it was in one of those dismal valleys that the hideous Chimera had taken up its abode. Being now so near their journey's end, the winged horse gradually descended with his rider, and they took advantage of some clouds that were floating over the mountain tops in order to conceal themselves. Hovering on the upper surface of a cloud, and peeping over its edge, Bellerophon had a pretty distinct view of the mountainous part of Lycia, and could look into all its shadowy vales at once. At first there appeared to be nothing remarkable, It was a wild, savage, and rocky tract of high and precipitous hills. In the more level part of the country there were the ruins of houses that had been burnt, and here and there the carcasses of dead cattle strewn about the pastures where they had been feeding. The Chimera must have done this mischief, thought Bellerophon. But where can the monster be? As I have already said, there was nothing remarkable to be detected at first sight, in any of the valleys and dells that lay among the precipitous heights of the mountains. Nothing at all, unless, indeed, it were three spires of black smoke, which issued from what seemed to be the mouth of a cavern, and clambered sullenly into the atmosphere. Before reaching the mountain top, these three black smoke-wreaths mingled themselves into one. The cavern was almost directly beneath the winged horse and his rider, at the distance of about a thousand feet. The smoke, as it crept heavily upward, had an ugly, sulphurous, stifling scent, which caused Pegasus to snort and Bellerophon to sneeze. So disagreeable was it to the marvellous steed, who was accustomed to breathe only the purest air, that he waved his wings and shot half a mile out of the range of this offensive vapour. But on looking behind him, Bellerophon saw something that induced him first to draw the bridle, and then to turn Pegasus about. He made a sign which the winged horse understood, and sunk slowly through the air, till his hoofs were scarcely more than a man's height above the rocky bottom of the valley. In front, as far off as he could throw a stone, was the cavern's mouth, with the three smoke-wreaths oozing out of it. And what else did Bellerophon behold there? There seemed to be a heap of strange and terrible creatures curled up within the cavern. Their bodies lay so close together that Bellerophon could not distinguish them apart. But judging by their heads, one of these creatures was a huge snake, the second a fierce lion, and the third an ugly goat. The lion and the goat were asleep. The snake was broad awake, and kept staring about him with a great pair of fiery eyes. But—and this was the most wonderful part of the matter—the three spires of smoke evidently issued from the nostrils of these three heads. So strange was the spectacle, that though Bellerophon had been all along expecting it, the truth did not immediately occur to him, that here was the terrible three-headed chimera. He had found out the chimera's cavern. The snake, the lion, and the goat, as he supposed them to be, were not three separate creatures, but one monster. The wicked, hateful thing! Slumbering as two-thirds of it were, it still held in its abominable claws the remnant of an unfortunate lamb, or possibly—but I hate to think so—it was a dear little boy, which its three mouths had been gnawing before two of them fell asleep. All at once Bellerophon started as from a dream, and knew it to be the Chimera. Pegasus seemed to know it at the same instant, and sent forth a neigh that sounded like the call of a trumpet to battle. At this sound, the three heads reared themselves erect, and belched out great flashes of flame. Before Bellerophon had time to consider what to do next, the monster flung itself out of the cavern, and sprung straight towards him, with its immense claws extended, and its snaky tail twisting itself venomously behind. If Pegasus had not been as nimble as a bird, both he and his rider would have been overthrown by the chimera's headlong rush, and thus the battle would have been ended before it was well begun." But the winged horse was not to be caught so in the twinkling of an eye, it was up aloft halfway to the clouds, snorting with anger. He shuddered too, not with affright but with utter disgust at the loathsomeness of this poisonous thing with three heads. The chimera, on the other hand, raised itself up so as to stand absolutely on the tip end of its tail with its talons pawing fiercely in the air and its three heads spluttering fire at Pegasus and his rider. My stars, how it roared, and hissed, and bellowed! Bellerophon, meanwhile, was fitting his shield on his arm, and drawing his sword. Now, my beloved Pegasus, he whispered in the winged horse's ear, thou must help me to slay this insufferable monster, or else thou shalt fly back to thy solitary mountain-peak without thy friend Bellerophon, for either the Chimera dies— or its three mouths shall gnaw this head of mine which has slumbered upon thy neck. Pegasus whinnied, and turning back his head, rubbed his nose tenderly against his rider's cheek. It was his way of telling him that, though he had wings and was an immortal horse, yet he would perish, if it were possible for immortality to perish, rather than leave Bellerophon behind. "'I thank you, Pegasus,' answered Bellerophon. "'Now, then, let us make a dash at the monster.' Uttering these words, he shook the bridle, and Pegasus darted down slant as swift as the flight of an arrow right towards the chimera's threefold head, which all this time was poking itself as high as it could into the air. As he came within arm's length, Bellerophon made a cut at the monster, but was carried onward by his steed before he could see whether the blow had been successful. Pegasus continued his course, but soon wheeled round, at about the same distance from the chimera as before. Bellerophon then perceived that he had cut the goat's head of the monster almost off, so that it dangled downward by the skin, and seemed quite dead. But to make amends, the snake's head and the lion's head had taken all the fierceness of the dead one into themselves, and spit flame and hissed and roared with a vast deal more fury than before. "'Never mind, my brave Pegasus,' cried Bellerophon. "'With another stroke like that we will stop either its hissing or its roaring.' And again he shook the bridle. Dashing aslantwise as before, the winged horse made another arrow-flight towards the Chimera, and Bellerophon aimed another downright stroke at one of the two remaining heads as he shot by. But this time neither he nor Pegasus escaped so well as at first. With one of its claws the Chimera had given the young man a deep scratch in his shoulder, and had slightly damaged the left wing of the flying steed with the other. On his part, Bellerophon had mortally wounded the lion's head of the monster, insomuch that it now hung downward with its fire almost extinguished, and sending out gasps of thick black smoke. The snake's head, however, which was the only one now left, was twice as fierce and venomous as ever before. It belched forth shoots of fire five hundred yards long, and emitted hisses so loud, so harsh, and so ear-piercing, that King Eobates heard them fifty miles off, and trembled till the throne shook under him. "'Well a day,' thought the poor king. "'The Chimera is certainly coming to devour me.' Meanwhile Pegasus had again paused in the air, and neighed angrily, while sparkles of pure crystal flame darted out of his eyes. How unlike the lurid fire of the Chimera! The aerial steed's spirit was all aroused, and so was that of Bellerophon, "'Dost thou bleed, my immortal horse?' cried the young man, caring less for his own hurt than for the anguish of this glorious creature that ought never to have tasted pain. "'The execrable Chimaera shall pay for this mischief with his last head.' Then he shook the bridle, shouted loudly, and guided Pegasus not as as before, but straight at the monster's hideous front. So rapid was the onset that it seemed but a dazzle and a flash before Bellerophon was at close grips with his enemy. The Chimera by this time, after losing its second head, had got into a red-hot passion of pain and rampant rage. It so flounced about, half on earth and partly in the air, that it was impossible to say which element it rested upon. It opened its snake jaws to such an abominable width that Pegasus might almost, I was going to say, have flown right down its throat, wings outspread, rider and all. At their approach it shot out a tremendous blast of its fiery breath, and enveloped Bellerophon and his steed in a perfect atmosphere of flame, singeing the wings of Pegasus, scorching off one whole side of the young man's golden ringlets, and making them both far hotter than was comfortable from head to foot. But that was nothing to what followed. When the airy rush of the winged horse had brought him within the distance of a hundred yards, the chimera gave a spring, and flung its huge, awkward, venomous, and utterly detestable carcass right upon poor Pegasus, and clung round him with might and main, and tied up its snaky tail into a knot. Up flew the aerial steed, higher, 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 above the mountain-peaks, above the clouds, and almost out of sight of the solid earth. But still the earth-born monster kept its hold, and was borne upward along with the creature of light and air. Bellerophon, meanwhile, turning about, found himself face to face with the ugly grimness of the chimera's visage, and could only avoid being scorched to death or bitten right in twain by holding up his shield. Over the upper edge of the shield he looked sternly into the savage eyes of the monster. But the chimera was so mad and wild with pain that it did not guard itself so well as might else have been the case. Perhaps, after all, the best way to fight a chimera is by getting as close to it as you can." In its efforts to stick its horrible iron claws into its enemy, the creature left its own breast quite exposed, and perceiving this, Bellerophon thrust his sword up to the hilt into its cruel heart. Immediately the snaky tail untied its knot, the monster let go its hold of Pegasus, and fell, from this vast height, downward, while the fire within its bosom, instead of being put out, burned fiercer than ever, and quickly began to consume the dead carcass. Thus it fell out of the sky all aflame, and it being nightful before it reached the earth, was mistaken for a shooting star or a comet. But at early sunrise some cottages were going to their day's labor, and saw to their astonishment that several acres of ground were strewn with black ashes. In the middle of a field there was a heap of whitened bones a great deal higher than a haystack. Nothing else was ever seen of the dreadful Chimaera and when Bellerophon had won the victory, he bent forward and kissed Pegasus, while the tears stood in his eyes. Back now, my beloved steed, said he, back to the fountain of Pyrene. Pegasus skimmed through the air quicker than ever he did before, and reached the fountain in a very short time. And there he found the old man leaning on his staff, and the country fellow watering his cow, and the pretty maiden filling her pitcher. I remember now, quoth the old man, I saw this winged horse once before, when I was quite a lad. But he was ten times handsomer in those days." "'I own a cart-horse worth three of him,' said the country fellow. "'If this pony were mine, the first thing I should do would be to clip his wings.' But the poor maiden said nothing, for she had always the luck to be afraid at the wrong time. So she ran away and let her pitcher tumble down and broke it. "'Where is the gentle child?' asked Bellerophon who used to keep me company, and never lost his faith, and never was weary of gazing into the fountain. "'Here am I, dear Bellerophon,' said the child softly, for the little boy had spent day after day on the margin of Pirini, waiting for his friend to come back. But when he perceived Bellerophon descending through the clouds, mounted on the winged horse, he had shrunk back into the shrubbery. He was a delicate and tender child and dreaded lest the old man and the country fellow should see the tears gushing from his eyes. "'Thou hast won the victory,' said he, joyfully running to the knee of Bellerophon, who still sat on the back of Pegasus. "'I knew thou wouldst!' "'Yes, dear child,' replied Bellerophon, alighting from the winged horse. "'But if thy faith had not helped me, I should never have waited for Pegasus.' and never have gone up above the clouds and never have conquered the terrible chimera thou my beloved little friend hast done it all and now let us give pegasus his liberty so he slipped off the enchanted bridle from the head of the marvellous steed be free for evermore my pegasus cried he with a shade of sadness in his tone be as free as thou art fleet But Pegasus rested his head on Bellerophon's shoulder, and would not be persuaded to take flight. Well, then, said Bellerophon, caressing the airy horse, thou shalt be with me as long as thou wilt, and we will go together forthwith and tell King Aeobates that the Chimera is destroyed. Then Bellerophon embraced the gentle child, and promised to come back to him again, and departed. But in after years that child took higher flights upon the aerial steed than ever did Bellerophon, and achieved more honorable deeds than his friend's victory over the Chimaera. For, gentle and tender as he was, he grew to be a mighty poet. Eustace Bright told the legend of Bellerophon with as much fervor and animation as if he had been really taking a gallop on a winged horse. At the conclusion he was gratified to discern by the glowing countenances of his auditors, how greatly they had been interested. All their eyes were dancing in their heads, except those of Primrose. In her eyes there were positively tears. For she was conscious of something in the legend which the rest of them were not yet old enough to feel. A child's story as it was, the student had contrived to breathe through it the ardour, the generous hope, and the imaginative enterprise of youth. I forgive you now, Primrose," said he, for all your ridicule of myself and my stories. One tear pays for a great deal of laughter. Well, Mr. Bright," answered Primrose, wiping her eyes and giving him another of her mischievous smiles, it certainly does elevate your ideas to get your head above the clouds. I advise you never to tell another story, unless it be, as at present, from the top of a mountain. Or from the back of Pegasus," replied Eustace, laughing. Don't you think that I succeeded pretty well in catching that wonderful pony? It was so like one of your madcap pranks, cried Primrose, clapping her hands. I think I see you now on his back, two miles high, and with your head downward. It is well that you have not really an opportunity of trying your horsemanship on any wilder steed than our sober Davy or Old Hundred. For my part, I wish I had Pegasus here at this moment, said the student. I would mount him forthwith. And gallop about the country within a circumference of a few miles, making literary calls on my brother authors. Dr. Dewey would be within my reach at the foot of Taconic. In Stockbridge yonder is Mr James, conspicuous to all the world on his mountain pile of history and romance. Longfellow, I believe, is not yet at the Oxbow, else the winged horse would neigh at the sight of him. But here in Lennox I should find our most truthful novelist, who has made the scenery and life of Berkshire all her own. On the hither side of Pittsfield sits Herman Melville, shaping out the gigantic conception of his white whale, while the gigantic shape of Greylock looms at him from his study window. Another bound of my flying steed would bring me to the door of Holmes, whom I mention last, because Pegasus would certainly unseat me the next minute and claim the poet as his rider. "'Have we not an author for our next neighbor? asked Primrose that silent man who lives in the old red house near Tanglewood Avenue, and whom we sometimes meet with two children at his side in the woods or at the lake. I think I have heard of his having written a poem, or a romance, or an arithmetic, or a school history, or some other kind of a book. "'Hush, Primrose, hush!' exclaimed Eustace in a thrilling whisper, and putting his finger on his lip. Not a word about that man, even on a hilltop. If our babble were to reach his ears—' and happen not to please him. He has but to fling a choir or two of paper into the stove, and you, Primrose, and I, and Periwinkle, Sweet Fern, Squash Blossom, Blue Eye, Huckleberry, Clover, Cowslip, Plantain, Milkweed, Dandelion, and Buttercup—yes, and wise Mr. Pringle, and his unfavorable criticisms of my legends, and poor Mrs. Pringle, too, would all turn to smoke and go whisking up the funnel. Our neighbor in the Red House is a harmless sort of person enough, for aught I know— as concerns the rest of the world. But something whispers to me that he has a terrible power over ourselves, extending to nothing short of annihilation. And would Tanglewood turn to smoke as well as we? asked Periwinkle, quite appalled at the threatened destruction. And what would become of Ben and Bruin? Tanglewood would remain, replied the student, looking just as it does now, but occupied by an entirely different family. And Ben and Bruin would still be alive, and would make themselves very comfortable with the bones from the dinner-table, without ever thinking of the good times which they and we have had together. "'What nonsense you are talking!' exclaimed Primrose. With idle chat of this kind, the party had already begun to descend the hill, and were now within the shadow of the woods. Primrose gathered some mountain laurel, the leaf of which, though of last year's growth, was still as verdant and elastic as if the frost and thaw had not alternately tried their force upon its texture. Of these twigs of laurel, she twined a wreath, and took off the student's cap in order to place it on his brow. "'Nobody else is likely to crown you for your stories,' observed Saucy Primrose. "'So take this from me.' "'Do not be too sure,' answered Eustace, looking really like a youthful poet with a laurel amongst his glossy curls, that I shall not win other wreaths by these wonderful and admirable stories. I mean to spend all my leisure during the rest of the vacation, and throughout the summer term at college. In writing them out for the press. Mr. J. T. Fields, with whom I became acquainted when he was in Berkshire last summer, and who is a poet as well as a publisher, will see their uncommon merit at a glance. He will get them illustrated, I hope, by Billings, and will bring them before the world under the very best of auspices through the eminent house of Tickner and Company. In about five months from this moment I make no doubt of being reckoned among the lights of the age, Poor boy, said Primrose, half aside. What a disappointment awaits him. Descending a little lower, Bruin began to bark, and was answered by the graver bow-wow of the respectable Ben. They soon saw the good old dog keeping careful watch over dandelion, sweet fern, cowslip, and squash-blossom. These little people, quite recovered from their fatigue, had set about gathering checkerberries, and now came clambering to meet their playfellows thus reunited the whole party went down through luther butler's orchard and made the best of their way home to tanglewood end of chapter 6 end of a wonder book for girls and boys by nathaniel hawthorne read by clive cathedral from clivecathedral.com